Morning, everyone. Welcome to Restoration. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to uh, be with you all this morning uh, for worship. Whether you're new to Restoration, visiting for the first time, whether you're watching online with us, uh, we are privileged to be able to worship with you, and we're thankful that you've chosen to join us. Um, if you're new, you haven't been here the last couple weeks, we started a new series two weeks ago in the book of Acts. We're calling it, as you can see up on the screen, the story of the church. The reason for that is that the universal church today and restoration are a continuation of the church that begins in Acts. And so the reason for this series, the reason for calling it the story of the church, is that the things we read about in each chapter of Acts have implications for us today. So when we go through each one of these chapters, we ask the question, what does this mean for the church in the world today? What does it mean for our church today? So in just a moment, I'm going to have uh, Aletheia Peters come up and read uh, from chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. But be thinking about that question. What is the implications does this have for us today? It's on the Pew Bible on page 911. If you want to turn there, and Aletheia is going to read the chapter for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as we look at it this morning. Um, we do pray that it would do the work that you promised it would do, that it would not return void, that you would use it to uh, both encourage us and convict us, that we would look at it, that we would see ourselves or our church in this story and how it might impact us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So two weeks ago, when we started this series, we talked about the establishment of the church, right? Jesus ascended to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his followers, and the church began. Then last week, Dan talked about the practices of that new church community. There's this new church. What would it look like? What would the people be devoted to? He talked about five things. They were devoted to God's word. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to sacraments, to prayer, and to mission. That's what the inside community of the church looked like. Those were the practices that the church offers to God's people. But what about outside the church? Right? Dan said the church should be devoted to mission. So what is the mission of the church? What should the church offer to the world? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, there are a hundred good answers to that question, but I think in verse 21... We see a, a good summary of that. It says that Jesus ascended to heaven, and then it says that Peter says that he's there, quote, until the time for restoring all things. That word restoration is obviously important to us here. So the church has named that. The promise of restoration is one that you hear us talk about almost every week here. It's the promise that Jesus is going to return one day, and he's going to restore everything to the way that it's supposed to be. That's the promise that Jesus' ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit invite us into. They invite us into this work of restoration, this promise of restoration. Now, it's important to remind ourselves when we hear that, that Jesus' death and resurrection already secured that promise for us. It's already guaranteed that restoration is going to happen. 
The restoration of all things is a certainty. And so that means the mission of the church isn't to make restoration happen. Jesus has already done that. John Calvin says, Jesus has already restored all things, but the effect of that restoration hasn't fully appeared. So that's what the church does. The church is the place where Jesus' restoration appears in the world and has its effect. In other words, the mission of the church is to show restoration to the world until Jesus comes back and completes it. The church should be a visible representation of restoration to the world. And I think our passage this morning shows us how we can do that. We're going to see that the church shows restoration to the world in two ways. Through deeds of restoration and through words of restoration. Those are our two points this morning. So let's look first at deeds of restoration. Look back at the first ten verses in our chapter. I'll give a, a summary of them. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. Now this might seem strange to us, but for them, they still understood their faith as a continuation of Judaism. So pray, going to the temple and praying wouldn't have been uh, anything strange for them. It would have been a normal practice. They go to the temple, they get to the gate of the temple, and there is this lame man asking for alms. Now, alms were donations uh, to the poor. Giving them was a significant part of Judaism. Provision for the poor all through the Old Testament is at the very center of the heart of God for his creation. So it wouldn't have been uncommon to show up to the temple to pray to see people there asking for alms, particularly people that were poor or that were suffering in some way like this man. So this man asked them for alms. It says in verse 2 that people brought him there every day. Right? So this was his life, sitting at the temple gate asking for alms. He looks at Peter and John, and he asks them. And we come to this significant moment of restoration. Peter looks at the man, and he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He takes the man's hand, and the man can suddenly walk. Now, the reason this is such a significant moment of restoration is that it points to a restoration that's unlike any that Israel had ever experienced before. There had certainly been miracles before. You don't have to read much of the Old Testament to know that. There had been healings. There had been deeds of restoration done through God in the nation of Israel. But the reason that this one is different is that it's done in the name of Jesus. Something new is happening. There's a new type of restoration that's at hand in Israel, and it's centered on the person and name of Jesus. And so now, in this new age, Jesus is revealing the effects of his restoration to the world through the deeds of the church. This actually isn't, uh, shouldn't be surprising to us. Luke has already written about this and prepared us for it. Remember we said that Luke is the author of both Acts and the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus' life. Back in Luke chapter 7, 
There was a story about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in prison. He knew that Jesus was there, but he, he was beginning to be a little bit concerned about whether Jesus was really the one that was the promised son of God. Was he the one who was going to bring this new age of restoration into the world? And so he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or should we look for someone else? And Jesus' answer to him points us directly back to this story. Jesus told them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. All the way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was reminding John of the Old Testament promises that a new kind of restoration centered on him was coming. And the evidence of it would be deeds of restoration done in the name of Jesus. Deeds that would restore the world to the way that it was supposed to be. And so as the author of both of these stories, Luke wants us to see that we've now reached that new age. Jesus has ascended to heaven, but that does not mean he is inactive. Jesus is still active through the Holy Spirit in the church in our world today. He's still doing deeds of restoration, but now those deeds are revealed and affected in the world by the church. Now, one immediate question that might come to mind for many of you is, well, okay, if that's true, then why don't we see these kind of miracles and healings still in our world today? I understand that question. I doubt that many of you would say that you've witnessed something as dramatic as what we see in our passage, a, a lame man being touched and having the ability to walk again. But I'd offer two answers to that question. First, we don't know everything that's happening in the world through the work of the church. There might actually be some of you who have witnessed these kind of miraculous things. I've talked to a lot of different missionaries and pastors who have seen healing and miraculous deeds of restoration around the world. Now, the time of the apostles is over, so we don't have someone like Peter or like some of the other people that we're going to read about in the book of Acts walking around with this particular ability to do these miracles regularly, but that doesn't mean that they don't happen. My second answer is that we don't want to limit deeds of restoration to only a physical healing. There are lots of different ways that the church is enacting deeds of restoration in the world. And I'm sure that if we surveyed you, many of you would actually say, if you haven't seen a lame man walk again, you have seen miraculous works of restoration happening. Because what's really happening in the passage? What's deeper than just a lame man being able to stand up and walk. Well, what's happening is that Jesus, through the work of the church, is enabling this man to live more fully, more the way he was intended to live than he's ever been able to before. It's not just that he can walk. Now he can work. Now he can care for himself. Now he can pursue flourishing 
in life, the abundant life that Jesus promised. This man can now pursue those things. This deed of restoration didn't just restore this man's legs. It restored his capability to be a flourishing human being in God's image. And if that's the definition that we're using for deeds of restoration, then most of us have seen those kind of miraculous things happen. That kind of restoration of someone's capability to be a human being in the image of God. Just in our church, many of you have had financial crisis, but the deacons have stepped in and they've provided finances and help in the midst of that season and helped you get through that and flourish. Some of you have experienced injuries or illnesses or death, and the church has come around you. It's offered you meals and friendship, a shoulder to cry on, emotional care, comfort in the midst of that season, allowing you to come out of that and flourish as a person made in God's image. Many of you have experienced hate or rejection or even injustice from the world, but here in the church you've found a place of safety and support from others, allowing you to flourish in your image bearing. A simple study of church history will show you that the church is responsible for all sorts of deeds of restoration in its history. The church is responsible for much of the elevation of women in society, much of the value and protection of the unborn and of children in society, much of the fighting against human slavery in history, much of the protection of the poor, much of the availability of medical care and education and literacy, our modern understanding of human rights, all of these things. This is just the short list of deeds of restoration that the church has done in the world. Now, I'm not saying that the church has done those things perfectly. I'm not saying that sin hasn't also impacted the church or that the church hasn't also been responsible for evil in the world. Those things are, of course, certainly true. But the overwhelming work of the church in the world since the book of Acts has been deeds of restoration in the world. So the application for us as individuals and as a church is to simply ask what deeds of restoration are happening here? What are the things that we're involved in? How are we as individuals, how is our church doing deeds of restoration amongst each other in our city in the world. Now, as a, as a pastor here, I know those deeds are happening. I get to see sometimes behind the curtain. I get to hear maybe more often than you do about the different ways that we're involved in those things. But we don't have to be able to make a lame man walk again in order to participate in the deeds of restoration that are happening by Jesus through the church in our world. So we ought to look around for the ways in which our church can be part of restoring people's capacity to live more fully in their image bearing. That's what these deeds of restoration are. That's what the church can offer through these deeds of restoration to the world. Now a church that pursues these kind of things is going to have an impact in the community where it lives. You can look at the responses to 
this deed of restoration in our passages, verses 8 through 10. The man is a recipient of this deed, and he comes away leaping for joy. He comes away praising God. The community around in the temple see it. And it says that they're filled with wonder and they're filled with amazement. Deeds of restoration are going to have an impact on individuals and communities where they happen. And that impact is going to produce something. It's going to produce curiosity. People are going to want to know, why are these things happening? How are they happening? What's happening? Peter sees that in the faces of those who are watching in the temple. Look at verse 12. He answers them. He recognizes that curiosity. He says, men, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk again? Peter recognizes that when some of these deeds happen, the watching world's going to ask, how's this happening? Why is this happening? And they're going to be tempted to place the credit for those deeds in the wrong place. Now, in our particular story, the Israelites would have believed that Peter and John maybe had been given power by God, a special type of power, or that their virtue, their piety, Peter says, had prompted God to, to work through them. And because Peter recognizes that, he recognizes the need to point them beyond the deeds of restoration to the right answer, to direct their curiosity to the right source of these deeds. And he does that through words of restoration, words of restoration that point to Jesus. In the next few verses after that, Peter uh, walks his listeners through the recent history of Jesus. He talks about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then look at his conclusion in verse 16. He says this, And his name, Jesus, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter is driving home this connection between deeds of restoration and words of restoration, that deeds of restoration that the church does can't be separated from the words of restoration that the church believes. Now that's actually a, a very controversial opinion to hold in our world today. That these deeds that the church does have to be tied to the words the church believes. Because people are actually very happy when the church or Christians do deeds of restoration. People don't complain about the good works that they see us doing in the world. But the moment that we suggest that those deeds are somehow tied to faith, to words of restoration, to things that we actually believe that have implications for the whole world, people start to get upset. There was a contributor article in the Huffington Post a few years ago that was titled, What Must I Believe to Be a Christian? And in it, this is what the author said. He said, I am a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus was God. I don't believe that Mary was a virgin. I don't believe that God exists as a trinity. I certainly do not believe that Jesus died for my sins or those of anyone else. And perhaps most shockingly, 
I do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He then asks, how can I call myself a Christian then? And this is his answer. I think that Jesus set out to give people an example to follow, a shining paragon of justice, compassion, and love for all to aspire to. We all must stop and think about what is foundational to our religion. What must we do to truly be a Christian? Is it a set of statements about Jesus that we must affirm? Or is it simply following Jesus' example in an effort to know God? I opt for the latter. How would you answer that question? What must we do to truly be a Christian? Is it affirming statements about Jesus? Or is it just following Jesus' example? I think if we ask Peter, he would say, yes. You see, the problem with the author's question is that he is implying that it has to be either one or the other. What makes a person a Christian is either deeds of restoration, living out the example of Jesus in the world, or it's words of restoration. It's believing these things as an act of faith living out the example of Jesus, or having faith in Jesus as a divine person. But Peter doesn't let us have that false dichotomy. Notice his answer in verse 16. He doesn't dismiss the deeds of restoration. He doesn't say, hey, the, the healing was just any, you know, the healing was just proof that you should listen to what I'm about to tell you. He links this healing, this deed of restoration in the world, to these words of restoration that are true. And so through the church, deeds of restoration are occurring all over the world, but they're Jesus's deeds. Faith in Jesus is the foundation of restoration. And so the church has to unite their deeds with their words, their words of truth about Jesus, words that invite people into faith in Jesus. The famous reformer Martin Luther said, we believe that someone is saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. What he means by that is faith in Jesus is the foundation to invite people in. But that true faith will never be without deeds of restoration, without a changed life that overflows in the way that we live. We started this morning by talking about verse 21, where restoration is mentioned. But verses 19 and 20 are what invite us into verse 21. Peter says this in 19 and 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. That's the invitation that our passage this morning invites us into. Place your faith in Jesus. Turn to him for the forgiveness of sins. And from that, times of refreshing and restoration will flow from him through you, through us, to the world in deeds of restoration. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, prepare to come to the table, as we prepare to do this, this act, this public deed, that we would be reminded that these things are 
intricately connected. That living out the example of Jesus is rooted in faith in Jesus. That the words and the deeds always go together. Help us to rest in that. To know that you've already accomplished restoration. We don't have to do it ourselves. We live out what's already true about us. In your name we pray. Amen.